0: Hello and welcome to the motivate change podcast, inspiring heart disease survivors to live a longer, healthier life. I'm your host, Devin Brzezinski, a fellow heart disease survivor and occupational therapy student here to help you navigate a world of uncertainty after a cardiac event. I am so excited because my heart sister, Jessica Cowan is here and we have the pleasure of knowing each other from being the class of 2021 real women with the American Heart Association. So welcome, Jessica.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So excited.
0: Of course. I mean, we were talking just before we got started about how we really wish that we were able to spend more time together together outside of just the AHA events because, because it was during COVID, we weren't really able to meet until this past February.
1: Yeah. And I always love to hear and connect, you know, our CHDs connect us naturally. And I always love to, you know, talk about what my journey was, learn more about your journey. And I always am saying, you know, it doesn't matter the extent of your CHD, a CHD is a CHD. So, you know, whether it's a very, um, I guess, straightforward is not the right term, but um, very versus a complex, you know, with multiple, multiple different layers to the CHD, it's still a CHD. And I always love just to hear everyone else's story and experience. And there's always going to be commonalities. And I think that's something you share and it kind of bonds you to begin with. And, uh, you know, everybody has, has experienced that will overlap and, um, it's just interesting. And, you know, knowing that all you have that instant support and connection is, is so nice.
0: Absolutely. a unique
1: thing too. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's very unique. I know. That's why I was really excited to talk to you today because you're also congenital heart defect survivor and, I I just want almost not to compare stories, but like to understand what you went through growing up, because I know it was very isolating on my end. And I wish that there were more resources and things out there like the foundation, uh, which we'll get into. Um, so we know that every year, 40,000 babies are born with a congenital heart defect, which comes out to roughly one in a hundred babies. Um, and we were one of the lucky ones. (laughs) So, and that's actually for those that don't know congenital heart defects are the most common birth defect. Um, but your diagnosis is pretty rare. You have what's called hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Can you tell our listeners like what that is exactly?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a rare form of CHD and interestingly enough, you hear a lot about it, but it doesn't affect a lot of babies. Just it's so rare and it's so in complicated, um, that that's why you hear about it more and you hear about single ventricles. So hypoplastic left heart syndrome really just means that I was born with literally half a heart. So I, my left, uh, side of my heart, left ventricle did not develop. So I was left with the right side of my heart that had to work as a whole heart. You know, it had to pump a double time. It had to make up for that missing ventricle inside. So over time, you know, that, that type of diagnosis wears on your system, wears on your heart. And there's a lot of things that can complicate the diagnosis. And really there's no, well, we know that there's no cure for any CHDs. Uh, and, and, you know, we do our best to advocate for that on a daily basis. And that's what we all look for, right? At the end of the day, we would, we just want to cure. Uh, we don't, you know, cancer patients have cures, you know, mm-hmm. their, their cancer is cured after, you know, said treatment, but unfortunately we only have surgeries that can help repair or fix for a time being, you know, just for the time being, and you don't know how long those are going to last. And I ended up having, um, to have three surgeries because of this defect. And now it automatically puts you into this category where there's three different surgeries and it's a series of surgeries to help try and fix and repair that complication. And and it's the same for if you were born with just the left side of your heart. So that would be HRHS. So, um, yeah. It, yeah. So your first surgery, it was at, what, two days old? Yeah, it was four days old. Um, my, you know, all the tests, the sonograms, all the, you know, progressive pregnancy tests that your mom gets, whether well, they were all normal so they couldn't mm-hmm. see anything on a sonogram or, or hear any different heartbeat when i before i was born so it was only after i was born that a nurse had noticed mm-hmm. i was um turning blue and then she you know they called in a a doctor, cardiologist and like, Oh yeah, heart, you know, they did whatever tests they do. I'm assuming in an echo and I was in surgery like two days later. So, um, yeah, first open heart was at four days old and you got to remember when you're that little, when you're a baby just born, your heart is the size of a walnut. So you can imagine these big hands <laughs> coming mm-hmm. into surgery and this was uh oh gosh, do I have to say it 40 almost 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't feel that age but it's crazy. In the 80s. <laughs> um yes. you know when and it and it's still pretty much the same. I mean the techniques maybe have had a little bit of a upgrade um but at end of day, it's, it's really just the same, those big hands going in with these little tiny instruments, you know, doing heart surgery. If you think about the size of a walnut, like I said, on a con- on a heart, it's very hard to comprehend, but mm-hmm. um, you can see the, in, you know, how intense and how complicated it can be. And uh, thankfully, I, I grew up in Chicago area and my doctors were at sh- in Chicago and um, I went to the main children's hospital mm-hmm. um, that was in the city. There's no centers closer than that one. And yeah, so it was four days old. Then 18 months was the second surgery that followed that first surgery. So it, like I said, it's a series of three. And then it's called the fontan. And each stage is, is different, but it builds on fixing that um the oxygen and, and how blood is flowing. And um the third one was when I was five years old. So that's called the fontan. And that you know, we've heard that name that operation, that name tossed around a lot when you have a single ventricle. Mm-hmm. It's it's the standard. Uh, palliative care. That's all you can do. Hmm. Uh, you don't know how long it lasts. I, I know people who have, have a single ventricle who are doing well enough to live, but it, at some point it gives because you, you, you're sink half a heart can't, you know, can't last you a lifetime. Unfortunately,
0: Sure. I mean, I just want to go back for a second because I'm just envisioning the surgeons operating on a walnut, like that's so small and the amount of skill and expertise that a surgeon has to have is just insane. Um, and then as far as your procedures go, like, so there's specific things that they're doing at each surgery. And then what types of things are they looking out for? I'm assuming that you go to a cardiologist every, is it every month? Is it every six months? Do you remember any
1: of those checkups? I remember a lot because I remember the checkups because I absolutely adored my cardiologist. So the cardiologist who first met my mom at four days old was the cardiologist I ended up having just about 16 years with. Um, and that they were, um, a team, Dr. Weigel and Dr. Cole. Dr. Cole was the one who initially met my parents. And I just always remember, I feel like it was pretty often. I feel like it was every three months, maybe every four months for a long time. I don't remember it ever being just twice a year. I feel like there was always something you know, a checkup because with the single ventricles, you definitely have to keep a closer eye on on everything. And you do your EKGs, you do your echoes. Um at that, when I was with my cardiologist at that point, he would do echoes in the office, EKGs in the office. So I wasn't going to like the hospital get them done. He he did everything. Um it's a little different when you're an adult and at the you know main center the for your care. I mean it's still everything is done in one spot but it's not necessarily done directly by your cardiologist right they just read the results sure. which you know it was again it was different um I know he still does that with his patients because it's um it's a private practice mm-hmm. uh, but he's affiliated with the the children's hospital but yeah I mean you just look out for Your own signs, like he would say, you know, typical signs for a single ventricle are shortness of breath, Um, chest pains, like when being active, Uh, just if the heart's enlarged or if it's, you know, it it has a different rhythm, right? So it's not going to have a typical EKG and typical echo. So if any changes on those show up. You know, that's why you keep such a close eye on on things, uh, because you never know when something's going to change. And and that could be for any CHD. It really could. It doesn't matter how complicated and how serious it is. It could be for any CHD. And I think that's that's one thing where it's like you do worry about and I, you know, You do worry about, okay, well, when's the other shoe going to drop? When is it my time to worry about needing to get a valve replaced or it and stop working? Or do I need a surgery? You know, why you just don't know. And I think that's something that I all, I won't speak for all, but a lot of CHD patients struggle with that they might not want to talk about for a long time. I didn't want to share my story. I didn't want to talk about it. Um, you know, embarrassed to be different mm-hmm. but um, I had growing up, I had such a good group of friends who just understood and it was just the norm for me. So they knew me from kind of like kindergarten on so they knew that well I was the only one with a a CHD in that I knew of in my class. throughout like high school you know uh so they're just like yeah right it's like it's that's the rarity of it right yeah um you know it's you would think there were more in the group maybe they didn't know maybe we didn't know about it maybe they just never mentioned it but as far as I knew I was the only one who was known for a heart (laughs) back to heart problem um and I just wanted to fit in and be normal. But when you're seeing your doctors and cardiologists and you're, you know, you're not able to run the mile the way your friends are on the mile. Like I, I do, I got winded very easily. Um, I, any intense exertion, my chest would hurt. So I would have to rest and it would be so much longer than everybody else to get that my heart rate down. And Um, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that definitely stood out, um, you know, that you, that you're made aware of, uh, and remember my doctor, like, cause I was, I did want to be involved in, in, you know, junior high, high school. I couldn't be involved in sports or anything really. Mm -hmm. Um, at 13, I was, diagnosed with congestive heart failure and I remember my cardiologist at that point because I was like really tired like sleeping all the time and I that's you know that's a symptom of heart failure you just you have no energy to do anything um and you're just worn out all the time even thinking hurts you know Mm. (laughs) you know you just want to you want to go somewhere and just sleep and, and so I remember him showing me the x-ray and he used his fist. Talk about a walnut size heart to begin with. Well, he used his fist and he was a bigger guy. You know, I was 13 mm-hmm. looking at an x-ray and I didn't, I, I saw, you know, what my heart looked like, but he's like, he made a fist and he's like, and am like, again, he has a way bigger hand. He's like, your heart's double the size of my fist, you know? Wow. intervention. So uh, I, I, that was seventh grade. I nearly passed out in school one day. That was another like, oh, okay. Red flag. And my heart, I was in tachycardia. So my heart rate was up in the two hundreds and that's not normal. Mm -mm. That's not a normal um, heart rate. And, you know, nearly passing out at school, of course, freaked my mom out, got into the cardiologist got in to see him x-rays all the whole work up and and um you know from 5 to 13 that was a pretty good period of time where it was just normal normal <laughs> <laughs> air uh, quotes <laughs> yeah you know when we when we talk about normal nothing's normal for for us uh and then i i so i needed uh a revised fontans. So they redid the, so they did a revised Fontan, which is, um, they had to go back and kind of rearrange some of what they had previously fixed and they added a pacemaker to control the tachycardia. So I had that, um, oh man, I hated going to get the, um, and remember again, this was like over 20 years ago, I hated <laughs> going into clinic to get my pacemaker checked because it was a whole thing. Like you needed an IV. And I it was really hard to get the IVs started. And I remember wearing my favorite pair of jeans and I never could wear them again because there was blood everywhere because I couldn't get the IV in and all this stuff. And um, it was just like a whole big deal to go get a pacemaker check, much less, you know, then you need your echo and your EKG and, you know, how's your scar looking? Um, I guess. So I was 13, right. Going into junior high, then mm-hmm. and that is a uh, time, right. For, especially girls, mm-hmm. like, that's a huge kind of turning point in your life because you're trying to figure out who you are, you know, I'm, you know, let's be honest, I'm still trying to figure it out, but
0: <laughs> I think we all are.
1: <laughs> yeah. But, but you start getting into that. Oh my gosh, I have to fit in. You start realizing junior high, especially high school, mm-hmm. we, you know, it's not an easy time for anybody. Um
0: And your body is also changing. Oh my
1: gosh. Yeah. And there's
0: so many insecurities.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. and I guess I hadn't grown any, like any over, a period of several years, I was just short and very tiny. Um, and that's also, you know, something that happens with a CHD, depending on, um, you know, you're very, it's almost like you, you're not healthy, well, you're not healthy exactly, but you know, your, your growth, everything is thrown off and everything is just, You know, when it catches up, it catches up and you don't really exactly know when that happens. Um, And and so the pacemaker checks was just an added layer onto everything else we have to do. Right. Blood work, caths, which I hadn't at that point had a lot of it. Just I think that's another way they found out that, you know, something was off and they needed to repair something um, Mm -hmm. by a cardiac catheterization they check your your heart pressure and and see how well it's pumping and your ejection fraction which is again a factor in if it's if it's high ejection fraction that's good your heart's functioning and everybody's different you know you could have a low ejection fraction be just be just fine but the lower it goes you know your heart's doing more and not being able to keep up and just getting weaker and weaker and Do you so, remember what your ejection fraction was? Oh, I don't ever remember being told. But usually when you're in heart failure, it's probably was in, I want to say between like the 20s and 30s. Okay. Like 60 is normal. It probably was lower. Um, because that's also when you start feeling that very tired very worn out feeling like you can't even walk from the bathroom to your bedroom or Mm. up a a couple stairs. Um, so it gets to be that bad. And,
0: and I'm just, I'm just picturing you in like middle school, high school and feeling like this. Like, did you miss out on events and stuff like school dances or pool parties, things like that?
1: Yeah, it was, it's, it's, I did miss so much and I, I don't wish I could go back and like experience it because my experience was my own. And, sure. I'm, you know, going to college and, and getting an education, you know, going and experiencing in college, I got to do that. But in high school, so I had my revised fontana at 13, my pacemaker put in at 13. And then it really was like two and a half years later, three years later that I was literally being listed for a transplant. So um it happened really quickly and when i say like i could not walk up a step that's how difficult like you're just exhausted like your body feels just completely heavy your mind's like com- cloudy you just can't function there's like it's like that fight or flight you know and you're in that you're you're doing both at the same time and it clashes almost and so you just do what you got to do. So sleeping helps. Um, you know, whatever my body was telling me to do, I did. Um, and I missed like probably two and a half years of high school. So again, Uh, I was the only one in my class who mm -hmm. in my high school and in high school, you know, you have a couple other junior highs added to the high school. So there was even more you know, kids that knew about it, I guess. Um, I do have to say, I wanted to be in school so much. I wanted to be with my friends. I wanted to participate in all of that. Um, and I did, I did miss everything. I missed Mm -hmm. everything. Um, and it was hard at the time. Um, I remember my first Stay back visiting I was allowed to visit and it was like everybody was so excited to see me and I was I was really happy and excited to see everybody but very insecure I was on prednisone so I was like massive oh teeny tiny you know the prednisone to keep your heart from rejecting you have to your my whole medication regimen changed um and and you're put on prednisone to just help suppress your system and keep your body from rejecting a new organ sure uh, because that's you know let it's not something that it's used to right so mm-hmm. um i had to change cardiologists my cardiologist couldn't do patients, so At 16, there was a lot of change, a lot, a lot of change. And I don't deal well with change, but you kind of just like you're dealing with it as you're going through it and you kind of have no choice, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, As much as you hate it or don't want to be going through it, you do. And um, yeah, I, I was back a little bit junior year and then senior year, I was back for my senior year. I definitely remember just it being I needed to take it easy and you know, I was able to leave early uh from school so I could go home and, and rest, but um I got out of gym. I mean, that's a plus. Who likes high school gym? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't play any sports. So it's like, okay.
0: I know. Um, and it was like I don't know if you guys played dodgeball back in the day, but I always remember trying to get out of <laughs> playing dodgeball. So. Well, and
1: I- yeah, exactly. And I always tried to get out of we. Everyone won't, never wanted to swim, unless oh. you were on the swim team. So we always tried to get out of swimming. And I was like, Yeah, if I'm good. I'm good. I so like I didn't even have gym. I didn't even have to go to gym, which was great, and and have to be forced to do any of that. But See,
0: that's a big plus. <laughs> it's
1: a plus. So you know, I mean, you look for those silver linings where you can. And yeah, you know it in. I went to college and i had a great time in college and i did everything i wanted to mm-hmm. do and to experience and um you know i was 16 when i had the transplant and i'm you know 23 years post transplant so that's huge mm-hmm. especially you know there are a lot of people that don't make it past the first year before either passing or needing a, a new heart whatever reason. Um, horizon line. Yeah, this isn't a cure, right? We know that, um, transplants aren't a cure for single ventricles either. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some research out there. Dr. Rodefeld's doing a blood pump. His research is, um, you know, if you have a single ventricle, his device is, is still in research phase. Um, it is a, as if you would have a full functioning heart is what he's doing. So wow, it's a that's... it's a pump that acts as your, you know, the four chambers and it pumps as it lessens the effect of that single ventricle. But so
0: he's developing essentially a mechanical yeah. a heart that's going to pump for you and make yes. up for that missing valve. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's like a mechanical um, or self-powered. He's working on um, product, and that would replace the need for a transplant. You know that that would free up a lot, a lot, a lot of um, complicated issues that transplants bring up. Because you know, on the horizon line right now, I I was worked up for a second transplant. Uh, so I'm doing well. Uh, I feel good. Um, but over time, um, the reason I have been worked up for another transplant was, is because the last maybe four casts I had, so it's natural that your transplanted heart will again, kind of develop other issues over time. And one of those is narrowing of the arteries and veins. So last like three or four casts I had, I had stents put in. So I have five stents. Um, The mm-hmm. last cap I had, I no stents there. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about that. You know, it's crazy what you get excited about because the last three times I've had a stent put in every time. And, but I feel good. I'm, I'm active. I try and do as much as I can, you know, working out, um, playing sports if i can if there's something i'm interested in i do want to try um pickleball and we really want to try that over summer
0: that's um, so funny you say that because i i played maybe once in high school and now that i'm in maryland i feel like everyone plays
1: so i'm like i need to start picking it up i know yeah i know i hear like everyone's playing and i'm like i got to try this cuz i've done tennis not great at it, but I at least have the coordination enough. Absolutely. Everybody yeah. Everybody loves it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, there are, are definitely those ups and downs. Um, you know, you might, you might ask, Oh, you seem so normal. I got you get through all of this. I couldn't have gone through it without sports system. Right. So I had my sister and my mom, my mom is Is and was my biggest advocate. I mean, she had no idea about CHDs until I was born. And, you know, now she's like a a quasi doctor in the field, right? As as all our parents, especially our moms become, because they are the ones doing the majority of the work to take care of, take care of us, take us to appointments. She definitely like, I'm, I'm open and I talk about my story and journey anywhere and everywhere with anybody. I wasn't, you. I wasn't like that. She's like that. She will stop somebody on the street and if she sees like somebody wearing a heart shirt, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> for a heart mom or something, she'll absolutely start a conversation. And I've become more like that because, mm-hmm. you know, she has no choice but to advocate for care and my needs and okay, well, what does this mean? She, you know, you have all these questions. And these, our parents just don't know what to do. Uh, so it leads them to question everything, which if you don't, you know, that could mean life or death. Mm-hmm. Right. That's yeah.
0: such a good point. I mean, I feel like our parents are our biggest advocates and our caregivers. So they're naturally going to do everything they can in order to make sure that we're safe and, and we're healthy. Do you remember if there was a time when, cause you said that you were very introverted and you kept to yourself a lot. And now you you really do want to speak out and share what you've been through. Do you know like what the tipping point was for you? Like if there was a certain yeah. moment.
1: <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So um all through and and like I said earlier, my friends knew and they knew I, I saw a cardiologist. They knew I was out of school for tests. They knew why I was out of school in high school. But I never talked about anything further. You know, my mom would always talk to everybody about everything, right? So she was the one who talked for me almost. and she she talked for me and advocated for me. So I I don't I can't say that I didn't feel like I could myself. It's just I didn't want to because i I don't want to be, you know, want to have that label of, oh, she's the heart girl, or she's the heart kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I didn't focus on it when I was taught, talk- when I, you know, met people or talk in school or anything, because I didn't want, people knew enough, but, and in, even in college, a lot of my professors didn't know because I would be like, because absences counted, right? You, you had to get permission first. Um, so it wouldn't yeah. count against your grade. And I would be like, I'm going to be out for a test. Um, at the hospital. So can you just, you know, I'm going to miss these two days. I didn't give any specifics why, you know, and I never talked about it, even all through college. Like I said, my friends knew, close friends knew. But the tipping point was when I was forced, literally forced to talk about it. 10 years after my heart transplant, my immunosuppressives were damaging my kidneys. So I ultimately went into renal or kidney failure 10 years mm. post-transplant. And ironically, it's the same medication I'm taking now for my kidney than I, that I have been taking for my heart for the last 23 years. But I was told in a, in like a hospital stay, cause I had gone into the ER really, really sick, not feeling good, you know, back hurting stomach. There were just a lot of things couldn't keep food down, um, you know what and, What and it
0: felt different than normal like yeah. the symptoms that you've been having with your heart
1: Yeah, it was completely different it was completely different um it was more like stomach back pain and i wasn't mm-hmm. sure what it was i i get i have gotten migraines in the past and mm-hmm. um you know but my they also take a all when every time they do blood they'll see your creatinine level, which is your kidney function level. Um, And I, I had been admitted to the hospital and I had a renal failure doctor come in and say to me, and this was out of the blue. I had no clue, no clue. Um, Have you ever been worked up for a kidney transplant? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, never have, has anyone said, anything to me about that (laughs) possibility. Like, no, what are you talking about? And, um, he's like, okay, okay. I think he needs to be, you know, I think we're on that. We're at that place. And I remember calling my mom, like bawling my eyes out. This doctor just came in. I don't know what he's talking about. Um, and so there was a very quick turnaround for, being worked up for a kidney and the weight for a kidney though, like for a living donor kidney, even for uh, a deceased donor is like six years. What? Oh so, yeah. It's a long time because you can with the kidneys, you can live on dialysis as miserable as it is. That's true. You can live on dialysis going three times a week. And that I, I absolutely hated. it. Hated, hated the dialysis. That was. So you
0: did have to go through dialysis. I
1: did only for a short time, thankfully. Mm-hmm. But I almost said no to it because I knew what having a kidney transplant meant, or dialysis, I should say. It was a port, you know, much like uh, cancer patients have when they get their chemo treatments. Um, cause I had seen my mom go through chemo treatments. She had breast cancer. So, you know, I knew when they said poor, I'm like, oh, no, um, that was that was really hard to to take in and knowing I, I didn't know how long I was going to be on dialysis for if I didn't have a living donor. Thankfully, thankfully, my sister, my younger sister. Um, so this is how I got started being open and talking about everything was my sister said she would be my a kidney donor. You can have a living donor. You can live with one kidney. Um, It's, you know, there's nothing crazy weird about that. It does the same thing as two kidneys. Um, So she said she would be my donor. I did not want her to have to be. I know I did not want her to have to be going through anything, much less we were in the surgery at the same time. So can you imagine my mom losing her mind, you know, um, And we're very close. My mom, my sister and I are very close because that was my support system through everything. Right. And my sister at points was like a caretaker helping my mom, um, even though she was younger, she got dragged into a lot of it. But at the same time, my mom would never leave her out of anything going on, which I think was very important too. you know, you have to let the other kids. And it's really hard for parents when you do have multiple kids. Um, whether it be one or or more than one sibling, how do you deal with that? That's a whole other level of um, that just adds to the whole situation of dealing with a CHD because it affects every single person in your family.
0: It really um, does. I mean, yeah. like you, there's a fine line of like how much should we share? Right. What are what's realistic? What are the expectations of the surgery? You know, and but I, I think it's important, and it's great that your mom was so transparent with your sister, and and like oh, the fact that she, yeah, she was willing to give you a kidney. That yeah. sounds so much. It speaks yeah. volumes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and she and she did, and um, you know, part of the donor process. This is for for all living donors. God forbid they need a a kidney themselves. They are able to go like to the top of the list so they can receive a kidney. Um
0: oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that and I think that was the only thing that made me say fine, you know, fine. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, there are people on the list who have been waiting 5, 6 years. So, you know, how do you how do you when it's your loved one I I get You know, you want them to be the first and and to get what they need as soon as they can. But, you know, there are people living on and there are two couple types of dialysis. So um, the one I had was a bit more intense than the the one that you can like have at home. Um, So I did dialysis for three weeks, all the while, um, knowing that my my sister, Amy, she was going to be my donor We also needed to fundraise to cover expense, medical expenses. So some of my insurance covered it. The hospital wanted their money too. And, you know, so she dove in and started fundraising. And that's how I was literally forced to talk about how in the world do I need a kidney transplant? You know, where, how did I get from A to B? Uh, So I had to go back. And start all the way from the beginning and share my story and talk about it and talk about, oh, I needed a transplant at 16. This is why I'm getting a kidney donor. And we were, we had help. We had um, news spots in the newspaper in Chicago and, you know, online and interview. Not a lot of interviews, but interviews enough where I had to share my story. So you know between that and kind of i putting it off but knowing that if it helps somebody else and and my mom being such a strong advocate and and never forcing me to talk about it but telling me that by talking about it sharing with it it could help somebody and advocating for yourself which obviously includes talking about it you need to tell you need to advocate for yourself which means telling whoever it is what is going on and why you know and if you have to start from the beginning you have to start from the beginning so i think that's really what propelled me to be so open and honest and i i really don't have any problem ever sharing my story at this point um i i come from it, the perspective of i get to meet new people I hopefully get to share my story and help others. Maybe if you don't know enough about CHD, you can go and and learn a little bit more. Um, you could definitely learn from both of us who experience CHD. It's like I keep saying, it's, it's the same thing. It's just gonna be a little bit of a different path and story. But um, I think that's really what made me talk about what was going on and why I was needing a kidney and it brought me right back to you know kind of did full circle mm-hmm.
0: now thank you for sharing that because I mean what you've been through is so profound and I think a lot of people like like meeting you at the event in New York and I just feel like when I when I've met you you have like this light and this energy about you and you're just really positive. And I feel like a lot of people might go in the opposite direction during these types of times. Right. And, um, so I'm curious how you've like kept your mental health up and how you've stayed sane
1: <laughs> over the years. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, yeah, it's not been, you know, it's been a struggle. I, those days, the dark, you know, some of the darkest days are when you're going through uh, those points in time where you're actually in thrown into, okay, I'm needing a heart transplant and being worked up and and throughout that. So it, you just, again, you just, the way I am, I just kind of focus on, okay, I need to get through this. This is what I'm going to do. I try and picture like anytime I hate going in for casts. No one likes them. They're not fun. They're invasive. We all know. Um but I just I just try and picture myself like after that. Like all right, I'll be home. I'll be with my dogs. I'll be comfortable. What mm-hmm. what am I going to have for dinner or whatever? You can always know you know I'm feeling good when I'm talking about food. All I want to do is food. <laughs> That's one you know, I guess that was one of my mom's uh, signs. If I didn't want to eat anything, she knew something was seriously wrong. Because mm. uh, I'm thinking about my next meal as I'm eating my meal, you know? <laughs> Let's be honest. I um, love
0: it. What's your favorite food?
1: Oh, man, there's too many to name. I don't know. <laughs> I love popcorn. I, well, love... is coffee considered a food? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> we could put it in that category
1: <laughs> as coffee would be my food but um you know, and I would oh man definitely popcorn. they would sneak in not sneak in, but I would refuse to eat like the hospital food because it was gross, you know yeah so when I was allowed to eat what I what I was, you know, if I was allowed to eat whatever I wanted, my mom would always go and get me something from outside of the hospital. Garrett's popcorn is, like, the best caramel popcorn on the face of the planet. Mm. Um, And cheese popcorn, like, you have to have the Chicago mix, it's called. So they would go get me popcorn. So stuff like that um, kind of made those moments better. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the mental health, I think the more I – we – that wasn't a term. That wasn't a thing when I was growing up. Like it, it's only been recent. So we hear a lot of mental health talk now and how it's okay to talk about how you're feeling and what you're thinking and um, it's encouraged. And we know that obviously there's a huge element of PTSD from trauma when you're, when you go through anything significant when you're younger.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, even as an
1: adult, if it's, it's traumatic enough, you know, you could have PTSD. And I think that's kind of how we labeled it. Like if I would just like have anxiety or depression, oh, it's PTSD. But I think now more so is actually knowing it's okay to talk about things with a therapist or, you know, take a break from, the situation and just kind of do something that makes you happy or makes you not think of where you're at at the moment, like getting through a calf, you know, okay, what am I going to do after? I think those things help, but I mean, mental health is, is so important, but I just don't think for me, it was talked about in that capacity I mean, Mm -hmm. my mom was always talking to me about anything I needed to talk about. I would I would lose it. I would cry like about any. It could have been about anything, um, worries, anything. I think that's how I dealt with it. Um, You know, it was very emotional. So I really don't know how to not deal with the mental health capacity in a different way, Mm because that's kind of my like. I have to get the emotion out to take a breath. Um, but it does yeah, so have to talk, talk to people.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like you, you're you very open and honest with yourself and you're able to recognize like, hey, mom, I'm scared. Or like, this is how I'm feeling right now. And just crying it out and like letting out those emotions. Because I feel like a lot of times we tend to keep it bottled inside. So much which is what we don't want to do because then it manifests physically and it affects our sleep and our quality of of digestion and all of these other things that can compound on top of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely. And in the healing process, it, it makes it that much harder and longer. And I'm sure you see in your patients They are not doing their exercises and focusing on what they need to focus. It's only going to take that much longer to get them to where they need to be to either write or walk or whatever the, whatever the injury was. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of in the same capacity. If you're not dealing with it, if you're not doing the work, if you're not at least acknowledging it, because that's enough for some people, you know, just acknowledging it. Okay. I have this need to deal with it. Um, But like I was saying earlier to you, also a way for me to deal uh, with a lot of it, and because I didn't talk about it for so long, is actually having those connections and meeting people and getting to know people who share the same experience and just knowing that you understand, you get it. And I think also something really important to me are the people in my life. Mm-hmm. And the connections I make, and at the end of the day, I—that's what matters the most to me. Um, and I know I could be like, "Oh my gosh, Devin, I just don't know what to do right now. I'm just having a mental breakdown," you know, mental or you know, what do you think? Um, I feel comfortable doing that with, you know, the people that I've made connections with. That I, you know, you just feel it. You feel and you know who you can turn to, to will listen and understand. And I think that's a huge part. The support system is a huge Mm -hmm. aspect of that mental health. Mm -hmm. because Not everybody has it. I mean, you're, you have a support system when you're in the hospital, but with the doctors and nurses, but you know, if you don't have a support system going home, what is, what is the likelihood that you're going to recover well um, or survive? It doesn't mean it's, doesn't mean anything like you know you'll you'll pass away because you're not you don't have a support system but it it adds to that healing um and it adds to that mental component of it Mm -hmm. because you're not taking it all in yourself you're you're at least able to just get it out and vent and then you can move on and
0: um I think that's that's definitely something that I struggled with growing up because I didn't know anybody around me that also had a heart defect. And so once I really started volunteering with the AHA, I realized that there's a huge support network out there. And it's just, obviously we have our family and our friends and they can relate so far, right? But then to actually meet somebody who is- not gone exactly through what you have, but at least like you can relate on that level. I think it just brings you that much closer.
1: Yeah. And, and I agree. And I think, um, I never wanted to be involved in the hospital support groups. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't, even though there were people who were similar, there were still other people in there that, um, had other completely different aspects of care that like, I can't relate to somebody who had a VAD, and I think it would be too much for me to hear that at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Now it's different. Um, Cause it was, and it was a mixture of, of, of things. And we really, I don't even remember having a psychologist on hand on the care team. Now that's super important. The social worker can't do everything. They're mm-hmm. not there for that. There's a social worker, but that's not their job. And they're not that great at it as Per ex, my experience, because that's not their specialty, and I never had a psychologist to be understanding to the point of the care team. So I think that is a huge change now. That again, along with the mental health lines, that p- these care teams are realizing these parents and patients need a, a psychologist to actually talk to going through everything. And mm-hmm. and that did change when I was at in adult care. There is a dedicated transplant psychologist for us, specifically for that. Um, That's which, amazing. Yeah, it's it's, it's so needed. Team. Yeah. Um, but I just uh, I never wanted to be a part of those groups. Um. But then, my mom was the opposite. Right? She wanted to be involved anywhere she could to learn anything, and. That's you know I'm the cardi. I'm my cardiologist's door. He was one of the founders of the Children's Heart Foundation, and um, I, he walked out and he. Cl- I hate when the door is closed to my room. I I need to see what's happening. Right. I need mm-hmm. to prepare myself when people are coming into the room. So I had probably gone and opened the door, but my mom. There was a poster on the back of his door for the Children's Heart Foundation and to get involved. And um, the Children's Heart Foundation was founded in 96, and we got involved when I was 14 in 97. And, you know, I was a volunteer for that because we didn't, at the time, the AHA didn't have the CHD component. So we couldn't, it didn't make sense to be involved. Yes, they had the heart attack and, and it was a great and worthy cause that I know we have donated to in the past, but specifically for um, a CHD, I'm so happy to be involved with them now because that is so important. And it's, you know, you and I don't understand the heart attack stroke portion of it. We only Mm -hmm. understand the CHD portion, but, you know, the more research we can fund only increases that understanding and that, you know, the awareness Um, so I was a volunteer for the children's heart foundation since I was 14. Um, because that was, that was literally the only thing we had. Wow. Um, so I understand like the need to be involved and and, you know, seek out people who have experienced the same thing. I think it's especially now important as we're, as we get older too.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like until, until the real women class and meeting you, I had not heard of the children's foundation, but at the same time, I don't know if I would have like looked into it for myself now because I'm older. Right. But even growing up because the internet was (laughs) just becoming a thing. So you didn't really have those resources out there, but now I feel like Everything's at our fingertips and people need to take advantage of it because they should not feel alone in this.
1: Right. And, and you're absolutely right. There are so many groups and organizations now, uh, specifically for CHD parents and patients. Um, we're just one of them. We fund research. That's all we do. Our mission is to fund the most promising research. So we raise money and fund research only for CHDs. Um, but as an adult, I wouldn't necessarily seek it out either if I were an adult coming into it, looking for looking to get involved. But any anyone any age can share their story because CHG patients are living longer and our life span and expectancy is growing Mm -hmm. with all of the new technology or um, the new research that's coming into the field, the learning from 20 years ago that we're seeing happening, like the mental health and um, the care team and importance of transitioning into adult care, the importance of adult care too. Um, I think it doesn't matter your age. I think it, I think volunteering anywhere would be welcome no matter your age, but I understand that component of it because I wouldn't necessarily seek out a pediatric foundation (laughs) as an adult, as an adult, it just doesn't make sense. So, um, I was super excited that the AHA did take on that um, more on the adult side too. It's so nice to see that. That's an important something that's important to them.
0: Mm-hmm. You really feel supported in that regard.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can complain on that. That was a lot of
0: fun. <laughs> So if you. Um were to give either your younger self-advice or someone that has a CHD right now um, that's younger and maybe in our 13-year-old shoes, what would you say?
1: Yeah, I know it can be awkward, right? You're trying to figure yourself out. You're just starting to get to know yourself and you see like school and high school and just don't be embarrassed, you know? Things are gonna happen no matter what. And Don't be embarrassed of having a CHD. Don't be embarrassed of talking about it. Um, don't don't feel like you might be different, but everybody's different. Everybody has something that makes them different. You know what? Mm-hmm. Think about it in that capacity, and and just I think the more you talk about it and are open um, now, will only help you in the future. And I think I think if I were open. Some elements of mental health might have been different, not all, because mm-hmm. I think the experience i, I might have handled the experiences differently. Sure, you know, but really, just if you can try and embrace it, and and don't don't care, don't worry about what other people think. It's not going to change when you're 13 to when you're 45. You know, it's not <laughs> for when you're 100. You're always going to have somebody thinking something. Um, and, and maybe consider it's more them than you. Um, that is so true. Something you need to teach somebody else. Um, and they might need to learn versus really that it's, it is not about you and they just need to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's what I would say.
0: Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. Um, I feel like, throughout high school. And it's so hard. It's easy to say now because we're out of that stage. Right. But like when you're in it and you're, you're trying to fit in, you want to be like everybody else, but like screw everyone else. Exactly. <laughs> it's your differences that actually make you better. I mean,
1: that's exactly it. Uh, I don't, I, we should embrace it. Like you can have, you can have the same clothes as your friends. Okay. But just still be an individual make your own decisions. Don't let anybody really, and we all go through it because we all let people sway us one way or the other. That's mm-hmm. how we learn. But just knowing yourself and, and knowing what is the best for you and not trying to compare yourself. Comparing yourself is awful. We still do it. It's really hard not to do it because we're conditioned by a lot of elements still that we do. Oh, I'm not skinny enough or, oh, my hair is not long or short enough, whatever it is. um, I just don't think it it's worth it in the end. And it's absolutely true. We can say that now because we've been through it. But, you know, at the same time, we're still experiencing it. And if you just can't be your authentic self and true to you, you can't really be True to anyone else, in a sense where you're going to be comfortable with certain aspects, mm-hmm.
0: and that that kind of brings up another question, and it, it's a little sensitive. So let me know if you don't feel comfortable yeah. answering it. But as far as intimate relationships go, how is that like for you growing up, and is that something that you like disclose on dates or like to? because obviously we have scars. So yeah. that yeah. was something with me that like, I felt like I always had to disclose on the first date and I almost had like this like pressure buildup. And so like, once I got that off of my chest, <laughs> literally <Yeah. laughs> I was more relaxed and more comfortable because then they knew like if we were ever to get intimate or take the relationship to the next stage that I wouldn't be insecure if they saw my scar.
1: That's a really good question. I think that's something that that's going to stick with us for and throughout any relationship, whether it's marriage or, you know, anything, it's still mm-hmm. going to always be there. Um, there are times when I've gone out on dates where I have, you know, and, and, and I don't intentionally cover up. Right. So if it's summer out and I want to wear a cute dress, it's a little lower cut. I will. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I hadn't said anything going into the date, you know, and they happen to bring it up, then I'll say something. But it just depends on how I feel I'm connecting with somebody, I guess. If I feel comfortable enough to tell them before a date or on our first date, then I will. Um, But there have been plenty of times when I just want them, and this is another like thing that I should take my own advice and be comfortable with myself, Um, but only we can understand that what the future and potential looks like, right? Some people when we're going out on dates, they can't comprehend that mm-hmm. because it's a lot of information to take in. So I've told them, you know, and then then I'll get, Oh, how are you doing now? Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm doing yeah. fine. Yeah, you know, I, I don't say, Oh, I've been worked up for a second transplant. There's always that potential. Cause that would be like, see you later. Bye. Um, that's how I feel. Now, I haven't met somebody just yet who, um, you know, I'm in a relationship with, but the past relationships, it's not really been an issue mm-hmm. um, once I've told them. Right. Yeah. I think because I don't focus on it all the time. I know it's there. It's in the back of my head all the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't focus on it all the time and I'm just doing what what I do. That helps. Um but it really just depends on if I'm really feel comfortable enough initially to say anything. And most of the time, that's a no. Most of the time, if I feel comfortable enough with somebody and we're having like a really good community, we connect, I'll say something. I'll say like, Hey, by the way, I won't make a huge deal of it. Mm Otherwise other, but it is a big deal. Um, and I, th- I feel like if I don't make a big deal out of it, initially, it's not going to be a big deal, um, even though it is a big deal. So maybe I need to kind of rework how I think about that, too. Um, but usually I don't tend to mention anything um, on the first date. I just kind of go with the flow and see. But really in conversation in a first date, I just I just don't put it out there. Um, Because then I know, all right, well, was it that, you know, was it that the reason why we're not talking anymore? Was that the reason why, you know, among all the other things that play in our heads, like, am I not this or this or this enough, And which is not any of the case, right? It's not the case. It's, again, more so them than anything. I I don't want to say it takes a really special person to understand, but we deserve a really special person to understand. Um, A really good friend of mine who just recently had her second transplant, she has an amazing husband. Like he knew and he, you know, just an amazing husband. And we deserve that. Right. Mm -hmm. When it comes to our condition, our, you know, CHDs. And I mean, she couldn't have a baby of her own. And I was told from 16, you're not to get pregnant. You can have hormone treatments. You can do all of that You can retrieve your eggs but just don't have the baby because it would be the baby's life or my life. Mm. And my mom has yelled at me enough being like, you're, you better not have a child. I, I don't want a child. I want you. And I'm like, I'm already, I already know I'm good with the decision. I'm good with it. Um, I'm okay. I've been hearing this since I was 16 and I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. I know there are options. Um, They had a baby via surrogate. She did. She did that. And, and, you know, there's, there's really nothing you can't, do but she she just has an amazing so understanding and sweet and patient I think you know that's what I'm I'm looking for in all of the sense not just the CHD but you Mm -hmm. know I I think they can understand that they can understand a lot so um but like once in a relationship I don't even think about you know it's just there it, it's not an issue unless, like, there's a major thing that happens. Sure. What always pops into my head when we're kind of in that situation, when we're, when we're faced with that telling, because, you know, we're not telling a secret exactly, right? It kind of feels that way sometimes. But you know what? Anyone, mm-hmm. anyone can be hit with any major health crisis so really they you would think people would be more accepting and just be like okay what can i do to do to help oh what do you need right because mm-hmm. maybe down the road they're going to need a heart transplant for whatever reason or they're going to have cancer and be treated and you're going to be there for them um now you'll have a, an extensive knowledge way past what they might have yeah but the difference is that You know, I, I try and think about it that way. I'm like, it shouldn't be that big of a deal because anything can happen to anyone. And my mom also tells me that. And I think that's also something that's helped. They're like, if they can't love you for you, what happens if they get sick? What, you know, so I, I, and people don't, most people don't think about that. Like when I go, you know, you're not going out on a date to think about that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right <But. laughs> and chances are i mean the odds are we all die from something yeah right? none of us make it out That's alive right. so there's most likely going to be something that happens to everyone down the road and right. i feel like in with just in, like having our own health issues and like me being in in the healthcare world we have a different perspective on it and a different lens that we can we know almost what to expect and are more realistic about it totally
1: yeah 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 absolutely well, you know but dating in general is not easy no. <laughs> let's put that out there like um very confused by it but yeah,
0: yeah dating in general like without yeah. any <laughs>
1: yeah no I, I hard stuff I, no clue
0: yeah uh <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've loved our conversation today it was so good to like Actually, hear your story like in full <laughs> because I, don't know, I just feel like even though we were able to hang out in New York, our time was still short. It was it's like just fun. for that day. And so I'm really glad that we were able to connect. Um, if people have questions or want to follow you, pimp yourself out. Where can they reach you? <laughs> I'm
1: on Facebook, Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Uh, You can always email me. Feel free to share any of those Um, Twitter. I don't use so much. I just got on (laughs) during a conference one a few months back. And um, but, yeah, I'm on all social and I'm happy to answer any questions and um, feel free to email me, message me on Facebook.
0: Awesome. Well, I will put all of your contact information in the show notes. Thank you again for jumping on. It was great speaking with you.
1: It was so good. I I, thank you for thinking of me and I loved talking to you.
0: I just love that conversation with Jessica. I mean, her story is so powerful and the amount that her, and not only her, but her entire family has gone through just makes them that much stronger. If you want to reach out to jessica i'm going to put all of her contact information in the show notes um and that's our show today folks so with that stay happy stay healthy this is devin